Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to this week's episode of Square Mile of Murder. We have a very special episode for you today. Well, the first of two special episodes. <laughs> so today and next week, we will be exploring the absolutely mammoth case of 11-year-old Moira Anderson, who went missing from the streets of Cope near Glasgow in February 1957 and has never been seen since. And this case is actually quite special to us because it was going to be our first episode. Um, but then our first attempt at recording turned into like a three-hour epic, which will never be released. No. Um, and it is also a longer-running case than the Bible John murders. Uh, and mm. if you're interested... There is an episode on Bible John on our Patreon page. Now we're going to try and do this case justice. Better than our first attempt. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, the first attempt was um, a, a bit a bit rambling, more so than, than we usually are, which is... <laughs> Quite an achievement. Yeah. And it's when we realized that my flat was definitely not the place to record. <laughs> Yeah, th we were on the floor. It was like j November or something. So it was really cold. December, I think. December. And like, I listened to the recording back and there was this like ticking clock in the background that was just like, it stole the show. Which is weird because I don't have a clock I, in I my don't, living room. I don't know why it picked it up, but it was there. So, so there is a phantom clock somewhere. I give a ghost clock. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to try again and hopefully it's going to be better. So let's get into it. Yes. Um, Moira was born Mary McCall Anderson on the 31st of March in 1945. She was the second daughter of Andrew and Marjorie Anderson, who were uh, affectionately known as Sparks and Maisie, uh, respectively. Her sister Janet was two years older than her, and the two were so alike that uh, people often said that they could be twins. Um, and their younger sister, Marjorie, was born four years after Moira. The family lived in a sandstone tenement building on Eglinton Street in Courtbridge, which is a working class town approximately 10 miles east of Glasgow city centre. So it's in central Scotland. It's um, Moira's father was a boiler man and they were well-known and well-respected family in the area. So uh, blonde-haired and blue-eyed Moira was independent and tomboyish um, and she earned her pocket money by running errands and doing odd jobs for the family's elderly neighbour, Mrs. Bruce. Uh, along with this, Moira delivered milk for Rankin's Dairy before school every morning, um, uh, and she would push her heavy wooden handcart full of crates of milk along the streets of Coatbridge. Uh, and doing that, she earned um, seven shillings and six pence, which she put in the Airdrie Savings Bank. Yeah, and if you don't know what seven shillings and six pence means, don't worry, because anyone born after the 1970s doesn't either. It's, it's fine. I think it was the 70s when decimalization came in. So, I I find the whole like shillings, sixpence, like it is so confusing. And I was reading something oh, for another one of our cases and like um, 
it was like 1860s in Glasgow. And uh, there was a new demarcation of money that I had never read before. And I was like, no, fucking no. You can't just keep adding them in. Like, <laughs> I get I get pounds and shillings and sixpence. That's it. That's what you get. <laughs> Remember when I said that this script didn't give you many opportunities for tangents? You were wrong. Not even at the end of the first page. It's fine. Often called the industrial heartland of Scotland, Courtbridge was, and still is, as I said before, a very working class town in the county of North Lanarkshire, so it's technically not Glasgow, but it kind of is. <laughs> and in the 1950s, Courtbridge was dominated by mines, blast furnaces, and earned itself the nickname the Iron Borough. I like that. And it was described as a sort of golden age of innocence when life moved at a slower pace. Stress was a foreign concept. It was a time when children played outside for hours unsupervised. Uh, you could leave your door unlocked. Uh, the local church minister regularly called in to see families. Which I find strange, but whatever. <laughs> um, but this age of innocence came to an end on the 23rd of February 1957. And it was a day that was described as a watershed moment in the lives of all the children of Courtbridge and the surrounding areas. On Saturday, February 23rd, 1957, Courtbridge was in the middle of a snowstorm. But, um, you know, it's Scotland. So the snow didn't really grind everything to a halt like it might have done, you know. In southern England. In southern England, further south. All right, but anyway. it was Scotland. They liked the snow. It was fine. Everything was fine. So <laughs> the day began, you know, the same as any normal Saturday for the Anderson family. Moira went with her parents to the Limb Center at a hospital in Motherwell, uh, which is a town about six or seven miles south of Coatbridge. Um Moira's father, Andrew, had had one of his legs amputated in a previous year although we're not uh quite sure when or why just was a thing just that had happened leg yeah at some point um uh normally moira would go to the children's matinee at the local cinema on a saturday afternoon but on this particular saturday her older cousins jeanette and beth matthewson were taking her to a later showing of guys and dolls so instead of going to the cinema Moira was playing out in the street with her friend Elizabeth until Elizabeth's mother called her in out of the cold as a snowstorm was forecast to turn into a fierce blizzard. Um, and Elizabeth went inside and so did Moira. The streets were unusually empty due to the weather and Moira was sent to her grandmother's home to see if she needed any errands running. And her grandmother was ill with age. Asian flu at the time and her grandfather was in Glasgow's Royal Infirmary and reportedly close to death. We're not entirely sure what with. <laughs> um, so Moira arrived at her grandmother's about 3.50 that afternoon and had arranged for her cousins Beth and Jeanette to pick her up from there to go to the cinema. And while she waited, her uncle Jim, who's a bachelor, still lived at home with his parents uh, told that he had no fat to cook the fish that he'd got for dinner for them and asked Moira to go to the co-op on Laird Street to get some butter. 
And this was the last time that any of her family saw her alive. So uh, before she left for the shop, uh, Moira told her uncle Jim and her grandmother that she was going to buy a birthday card for her mother. And she also said that she was looking forward to making empire biscuits for her mother's birthday um, because they were her favorite, you know, sweet, sweet treat. Um, Moira would normally take her grandmother's dog, Glenn, with her when she ran errands. But because of the heavy snow on this day, she didn't and set off on her own to the co-op a few streets away. I remember Glenn. Yes, because we don't know what breed of dog he is. That's right. So, yeah, the dog is called Glenn, but we don't know what kind he is. But I'm guessing a small dog if she didn't want to take him out in, in the heavy snow. snow. Yeah, mm. I just that's a great dog name because it's such like a middle aged <laughs> man name. And so it's, <laughs> it's just like it's like naming your dog Dennis or something like I don't know. It's fantastic. My aunt and uncle got a puppy a couple of months ago and it's called Bert. <laughs> it's a black Labrador. Okay, that fits. And they called him Bert. (laughs) That definitely fits. (laughs) Yeah, see, Glenn, I'm picturing as a a yellow lab. I don't know why. Just seems like a Glenn. (laughs) So I think it's important to stress at this point, much like in the Mary Bell episode uh, a few weeks ago, that it was perfectly normal for families to send their kids to shops on errands, for the kids to play outside, to be left unsupervised. Because it really was a different time and it was generally considered safe. And this was even, this is earlier than Mary yeah, Bell, right? Yeah, this is like about 10, this is 10 years ten before years Mary Bell. 10, 11 years before Mary Bell. Yeah. And these were close-knit working class communities. Everyone knew each other. And yeah, there wasn't that fear that we have now. No one was hanging out in Rat Alley and, and Coat Bridge. No. No references to Rat Alley and Coatbridge. See, there you go. That's just just but shows again, how I safe it was. For one, so you know, <laughs> I'm sure there was one. Like, there's always a Rat Alley somewhere, right? Well, but there probably would have been, you know, later on in the '60s because that's when slum they clearances. Started, all the slum slum clearances started. Yeah. So there probably will have been at some point, although a lot of the slums were cleaned up. Not all of them were torn down in Glasgow. Yeah, as is evidenced by the fact that you know tenements are now rented out for extortionate prices. <laughs> yes, not that we know anything about that. No, what do you mean? Because I sit in my tenement flat. Mm. Yeah, yours is a lot more extortionate than mine, but also a lot nicer than mine. <laughs> but also, I'm getting a steal of a deal, so that's all I care about. <laughs> um, so uh, Jeanette and Beth came to their grandmother's house to collect Moira and take her to the movies, but because she hadn't returned to the house, everyone assumed that she had just gone straight to the cinema. So Jeanette and Beth went to the cinema hoping to meet her there. But when they got there, they couldn't find Moira and the guys and dolls showing was sold out. So they assumed that Moira had already gone in um, because despite her young age, she was very independent and it wouldn't have been unusual for her to go, you know, into the theater by herself. Beth and Jeanette bought tickets to another film and thought nothing more of it. And nobody actually realized that anything was wrong until later that evening when Moira's father, Andrew, went to Jeanette and Beth's home looking for Moira. 
So he'd previously been to the grandmother's home and then just assumed, oh, she's not there, so she'll still be with her cousins. And Jeanette and Beth had assumed that Moira had either gone back to their grandmother's house after the film or just gone home. And it's only then when her father goes to the cousin's house that they finally realise that Moira is missing. So the family, along with friends and neighbours, search the local area well into the night, but with no trace of Moira. At around midnight, they reported her missing to the local Courtbridge Borough Police. So the police contacted the managers of six local cinemas to go and open up again to check if Moira had gotten herself locked in somewhere, got stuck, you know, if she'd fallen and got trapped somewhere. And they contacted local librarians because Moira loved going to the library and reading uh, to also go and check the premises. But again, there was no sign of the young girl. Uh, so the following morning, a huge search was launched by police. They were joined by hundreds of local volunteers, um, including the local Boy Scouts and Cub, Cub Scouts troops. The search teams covered Coatbridge and the neighboring town of Airdrie, uh, but this search turned up no signs of Moira. Police also spoke to the staff who'd been working in the co-op shop the previous day, all of whom knew Moira and the Anderson family, and they were all adamant that they had not seen Moira in the shop that day. Uh, two days later, on Tuesday, the 26th of February, the Daily Record, um, which is like a main tabloid newspaper in Scotland. Um, so the Daily Record ran Moira's story with an appeal for anyone who knew anything to contact local police. Um, and it also included a map of where Moira should have walked from her grandmother's house to the co-op. Uh, and the article ended with a quote from Moira's mother, Maisie, saying, I know that Moira has been taken away against her will. She would never speak to strangers. Everybody knew Moira. She was such a tomboy, so full of fun and life. She wouldn't go willing with anyone with her birthday being so close. And a witness did actually come forward following the appeal in the Daily Record. Mrs. Twycross, who lived between the grandmother's house and the co-op shop, although we're not entirely sure whereabouts. And she said that she was out shoveling snow from the front path uh, when she saw Moira walking in the direction of the co-op. And on the day that Moira disappeared, a football match between the nearby town of Airdrie and the coastal town of Ayr had been abandoned due to the bad weather. So thousands of football fans had been in the local area in Airdrie and Courtbridge at the time Moira was last seen. And police put out an appeal to football fans asking them to come forward if they had seen, uh, seen the young girl. Uh, but nobody came forward, mm. which isn't really surprising to me because all these local like people in the streets around where her family lived or her grandparents lived knew her, whereas you've got football fans from Airdrie and from Air, so they're not necessarily going to know her. Like, there's not necessarily mm -hmm. going to be anyone in those crowds that knows her. Yeah. So, if, okay, they might see a little girl walking down the street, but they don't know it's Moira. They don't know who it is. It's just... And, like, a week later, do you really remember everyone you passed on the street? No. Uh, like, five minutes later, I don't. 
No, yeah, like to to someone who wouldn't necessarily know her, she's just another kid on the sidewalk. Yeah, like exactly, could be anyone. Because Moira's family were adamant that she would never willingly go off with a stranger, and uh, her uncle Jim was the last person to see her, police began to sort of zero in on Jim as their prime suspect. Uh, he was a lifelong bachelor, and for some reason, that, along with being the last person to see Moira, was all the evidence police needed to pursue him. Um, Jim was questioned multiple times, despite uh, lack of any evidence, and many in the local community also suspected him for the rest of his life. So I'm not entirely sure when uncle jim died but i know that moira was about the same age as my aunt who is she'll be 74 this year yeah and i mean my grandparents died fairly young but it is possible that you know that generation could have lived you know if they if he lived well into his 80s or 90s he could have died like only 20 years ago Mm -hmm. so that is almost 50 years that he could have been carrying around all that suspicion hanging over him. Yeah, which That's is awful. Really sad. Yeah. Um, also curious about the sort of lifelong bachelor, confirmed bachelor language that's always referred, uh, mm. how he's referred to as, because, like, if he was perhaps a gay confirmed bachelor, maybe people also would sort of target him as like, oh, that no good, no good Jim. He's so I could see that like if someone was at all different, it's a lot easier to point the finger at them and be like, hmm, 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 you're weird. So with no evidence that it was Uncle Jim, um, police were forced to look elsewhere. Uh, and there was a lot of criticism uh, of the police investigation, which uh, we'll look at in more detail a little bit later. But one of the main things they were criticized about in the initial days and w- weeks following Moira's disappearance was that they did absolutely no um, door-to-door investigating or canvassing. Um, and police claimed that if anyone had any relevant information, they would come forward, which is not how it works because... Because why would they? What's yeah. <laughs> and this isn't to say that people had relevant information and they were hiding it. It's just that sometimes people don't realize they know something important. Yeah. So, you know, if police had gone door to door and asked people, you know, something like, did you hear a child screaming or crying at such and such a time? The person might have said yes. and But they might not have realized the relevance of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think about it like I have neighbors in the sort of general vicinity that have young kids and like I hear kids screaming all the time. So yeah, it's you, like, like uh, our neighbors, they have a one child who I think is about six or seven and then two teenagers. Mm-hmm. They're always screaming and playing and carrying on. Yeah. And they're always making a noise. They're actually quite quiet today. <laughs> well, and so like, but yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't totally think see anything it. of it. Yeah, and just be like, oh, was that not a normal child? You know, uh, squeal mm-hmm. from from next door. Like, 
yeah. and less prompted to sort of think about it in a different yeah. light, I guess. Yeah, I mean, sometimes like you do hear kids screaming and it's like a scream of pain or something like something isn't right. Yeah. But, but that could also just be because they're kids and they run into stuff yeah. and, you know. Yeah. But unless that's like a prolonged screaming. Yeah. Again, you probably brush it off as, oh, they fell over. I mean, kids I, are dramatic. I, I screech in pain when I hurt myself. And that's, a, I mean, I tend to swear. So that's a pretty good indicator it's not a child. I mean, <laughs> I would swear as a child, so. <gasps> Taylor. It's my mom's fault. She taught me. It's my dad's fault, too. I believe that. But <laughs> <laughs> I think also it's just that, like, it's not the most efficient way to get information. It, like, sitting back and just assuming it will come to you is not going to be faster or, like, more productive than just going out into the neighborhood and being like who has seen something or anything or yeah. whatever so yeah not a great not a great plan uh so police had come up with a profile of who they believe took moira um and because they had to clear uncle jim uh, they had to look elsewhere and they began to suspect another local man named ian simpson uh now, Simpson had learning difficulties. Uh, he fit their profile, although we're not really sure what that profile actually was. Yeah, I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah. Um, I know there is a book about this case, which we will talk about, I think, in the second part. Mm. Um, but I haven't read it. I've only read what's available on Google Books. <laughs> yes, the, the preview pages. So... Um, so it might be like in there yeah but yeah we don't actually know what their profile was yeah so apparently ian simpson fit it um whatever it may have been um yeah and also sorry this is the 50s so this is before like psychological profiling came in as well so it's not going to be that kind of profile yeah or not likely to be and profiling here didn't catch on until quite a while after it was developed in the 60s in the United States. So who knows what it was? It's something. They had a profile of something. We don't know. Um, uh, and Ian Simpson's sister also lived next to the co-op on Laird Street uh, where Moira was headed to, to buy the butter that day. Um, however, Simpson had an alibi. He had been on a day trip with the local branch of the Territorial Army. Uh, now, in the UK, the ter Territorial, which is harder to say than one might imagine. <laughs> um, Could just call it the TA. Everyone knows it as the TA. Yeah, I'm just going to, yeah. The TA, known now as the Army Reserves, um, our branch of the military made up of voluntary reserves. And Simpson's alibi was confirmed by others on the day trip, and he was soon ruled out. This whole thing makes me feel very uncomfortable because everywhere you read about Simpson being a subject, a subject, <laughs> a suspect, all that really seems to be written about him is that he had learning difficulties and his sister lived next door to the co-op. Mm -hmm. And 
kind of makes me feel like police targeting someone, it would be really easy to convict because they could easily convince him that he did it and close the case rather than actually working the case. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just me being cynical. We all know I'm very cynical and hate the police. Well, I don't hate them. I just have bad experiences. And so, yeah, it just feels really uncomfortable to me. Yeah. But again, we don't know what the profile was that police came up with. And so we don't know how he fit it other than he had learning difficulties and his sister lived near the co-op. Yeah. And uh, unrelated, Ian Simpson did actually go on to have quite an interesting life. So a few years later, in 1960, he was hitchhiking up in the Cairngorms, which is a mountain range in kind of northeastern Scotland, kind of. Um, So he was hitchhiking back to Lanarkshire and was picked up by George Green. So Simpson shot and killed Green after an argument about religion. He then dumped Green's body at the side of the road and kept his car. Oh. And a few months later, he picked up a hitchhiker of his own. 24-year-old Swiss student Hans Rudy Gimme, and again, after an argument about religion, he killed Hans Rudy Gimme. And the only reason that Simpson escaped the death penalty uh, was because he was deemed mentally ill, and he was sent to Carstairs Psychiatric Hospital in 1962, um, which is just outside of Glasgow again. I think it's in North Lanarkshire. Yeah. Maybe in South Lanarkshire. I'm not sure. I think it's North Lanarkshire. Yeah, you can always hear the, the train lady announcing, uh, this train stops at blah, 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 and car stairs. Um, I just love that name. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was sent, in, uh, sent to Carstairs Psychiatric Hospital in 1962 where he would live until his death in 1976. So in 1976, Ian Simpson was murdered by uh, Dundee school killer Robert Morn and his lover Thomas McCulloch as they broke out of Carstairs Psychiatric Hospital. Quite, uh, quite the life there. Yeah. But had absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> Moira Anderson's disappearance. Um, so after ruling out Simpson, police followed other leads and reported sightings, but they were all fruitless. Uh, a woman who lived near the Andersons said she had heard screeching car brakes and seen a car speeding off that afternoon. Uh, police dismissed her theory that Moira had been knocked down and the driver had bundled her body into her, into their car. Um, they claimed that the neighbor couldn't have seen what she said she had from her flat. Okay, sure. Um, I mean, who can trust their own eyes when the police are there to tell you they know better? Yeah. Um, a, a family reported seeing her at the Queen's Park Fair in the south side of Glasgow, but nobody else could corroborate that and police didn't you know, follow up at all. Uh, I like Queen's Park. <laughs> it's it's like my favorite park in Glasgow. I haven't been there we, yet. We we have to go in the summer, assuming that we're allowed we get to outside again. Yeah, 
Yeah. You can see like the whole city from the top of the park. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. And it's in the south side, which is nice anyway. So Yeah. Um, so a woman in Greenock, which is a port town, um, west of Glasgow, uh, reported seeing Moira, uh, in, in town in Greenock and police question locals and ship crews, ship crews, police questioned locals and ship crews who were docked there at the time of her disappearance. But like all the other leads, um, they didn't go anywhere. A young girl was reported to have been seen being dragged into a van in Berliston, which is another nearby small town. It's about four miles from Courtbridge. This van was traced and found in Gretna, which is about 80 miles south of Glasgow. And it's like the border town between England and Scotland. So you have Gretna on the Scottish side and Carlisle on the English side. Mm -hmm. And it actually turned out that the young girl was a fully grown woman. And she was hitching a lift and got in willingly. She wasn't dragged or forced. And she hitchhiked, got where she was going. Near bother. <laughs> yeah. And uh, on a side note, Gretna was the place where underage couples in England used to run away to to get married, you know, back in olden days. And you were married by the blacksmith on Gretna Green. And you can actually still get married on Gretna Green, although I don't know if a blacksmith marries you. <laughs> should <laughs> mm. um but with no leads the andersons became suspects and they were interviewed extensively by police and uncle jim once again fell under suspicion we've, we've circled right back around yeah um like oh we couldn't we couldn't get it couldn't get him before but maybe with our lazy police work and having done absolutely nothing else we can do it this time <laughs> Um, so after weeks of pointing the finger at Moira's innocent relatives and other locals like Ian Simpson, police finally worked out Moira's movements on the day she disappeared. Three witnesses had told police that they had seen Moira walking in the opposite direction of the co-op on Laird Street and getting on a bus in Alexander Street. One woman saw her fall over in the snow and then pick herself up and carry on. Um, a man, James Ingalls, saw her waiting for the bus and said she got on it after him. One woman who knew Moira had seen her get on the bus and spoken to her but couldn't recall seeing her get off the bus. The bus conductress was questioned but she couldn't remember seeing the girl. A fourth witness reported seeing Moira in Whiflet is another small town in North Lanarkshire although apparently it's also it's now considered a suburb of Courtbridge mm. but I always thought it was the town itself so I'm well it's got its own train stop so yeah it's got its own train station <laughs> so you know that is all you need yeah. <laughs> anyway it's about a mile and a half from Courtbridge town centre yeah and this witness claimed to see Moira near a bus stop looking as though she was waiting for someone Although these reported sightings of Moira on a bus went nowhere. But 30 years later, this bus journey would actually become central to the cold case inquiry. Uh In case you haven't worked out where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) That's where we're getting to here. Um, So the investigation plotted along um, at a slow pace, which led to a lot of criticism, which we mentioned. 
Um, and as well as not carrying out any door-to-door um, inquiries, the police also refused to call in the Glasgow CID, uh, despite calls from the Anderson family and friends for them to do so. And now the Glasgow CID, uh, also known as the Criminal Investigation Department, were uh, much more experienced than the local borough police when it came to missing persons cases, um, and in particular, missing children cases. But uh, local police refused uh, to bring them in. Um, and there are various theories about why they refuse to do this. Um, the first is, uh, of course, we, we know it well, police incompetence. Uh, there was a lot of lazy policing, policing going on in this case. Um, and the theory goes that they didn't want another department to come in and you know solve the case where they had failed. Um, the other theory is a conspiracy to cover up for one of their own or someone in, you know, in high places. Um, and while these, you know, theories might sound like a family desperate to blame someone for their daughter's case not being solved, um, there's actually quite a bit of, uh, credibility and, and, and background to these concepts. So, uh, Put a pin in that, and we'll we'll get back to it later. Yeah. All will be revealed. <laughs> Everything will become clear. That's why this is two parts. <laughs> <laughs> the BBC broadcast Moyer's photo for the first time on May 18th, uh, but even this wasn't without its controversy. Courtbridge police claimed that the BBC had refused to broadcast Moyer's photo, along with photos of other missing children in the area, and police said that this is because the BBC had told them that broadcasting photos of missing children on its news programme served no useful purpose. However, the BBC then claimed that they hadn't actually been asked by police to transmit Moira's photo until May, which was almost three months after she had disappeared. Duh. And, you know, I don't know... I'm not entirely sure of what the law is now or what it was then, but I know that news agencies don't necessarily go out of their way to report on missing kids unless police ask them to because sometimes it can actually hinder investigations. Yeah. You know, because there is always a theory of once an, ab um, an abductor or an abuser knows that the police know the kid's missing or the police have been, you know, that somebody is looking for this kid. That kid, if that kid's still alive, they are in more danger. Yeah. So, I'm not like I say, I'm not entirely sure of the law, but I know that they do often wait to be asked as to what or you know be told. Right, this can go out, this can't. You know, it would be whatever the '50s version of a like injunction was mm -hmm. against reporting. So, yeah, I don't think it's that. You know, it's not necessarily like a conspiracy by the BBC to refuse to transmit pictures. It's just that they need to be told when it, if it's safe to. Yeah. Uh, so two days after the broadcast, so by, this is the 20th of May, 1957, uh, local newspaper, the Glasgow Herald, reported that the BBC broadcast had brought no new leads or information. 
Is two days a long enough time, though? <laughs> no. Uh, further criticism for the police came when it was revealed that the Monkland Canal, uh, part of which ran through Courtbridge, hadn't been dragged. So the canal had been abandoned in 1942. It was part of like a really big can- like waterways, uh, like river and canal network mm-hmm. across central Scotland, most of which is still can like still go on today. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it had been abandoned for. 15 years at this point, it was overgrown with weeds. But that, ma- quite honestly, made it the perfect place to dump a body. <laughs> and uh, police refused to drag the canal because it was overgrown with weeds and it would have made it a bit difficult. Hmm. And <laughs> what missing persons case isn't difficult? Yeah. Also, like... If it's full of weeds, it'd be an even better place, like, to hide mm. a body. So it should just be more of a reason to go check it out. Yeah. So the Cotbridge area, even now, is still full of old collieries, mine pits, mine shafts, bogs, marshes, and wetlands, as well as what's left of the canal. So if Moira had been murdered and her body dumped locally, as was suspected... She could have been anywhere. Yeah. But the police still didn't go looking at any of these places. Of course. Um, so more recent criticism came when it became known that police didn't speak to many of the people known to see Moira that day, including her friend Elizabeth, um, who she'd been playing uh, with outside that day before the blizzard really set in. Um, and in fact... Police didn't speak to Elizabeth until more than 30 years later, which is wild. Wow. Not even shocked, actually, at this point. Um, so, uh, and uh, on an interesting sort of tangent, a planned tangent for once. A scripted uh, tangent. <laughs> uh, Glasgow-based um, serial killer Peter Manuel was suspected of abducting and murdering Moira, but he was in prison at the time. Um, And Manuel used it in his defense at his next trial, saying police had tried to um, fit him up. I don't think I can say that because I don't have a cool accent. Uh, (laughs) So he claimed that police tried to fit him up for Moira's murder when he couldn't possibly have done it. Yeah. Um, uh, and so he tried to use this to discredit evidence police did have against him. Um, that didn't work, obviously. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, right. Uh, and um, although he wasn't convicted for Moyer's abduction and disappearance because he had a pretty solid alibi. Um, yeah, they don't come much more solid than, well, I was in prison. Yeah, <laughs> like, already incarcerated. Um, yeah, the police are literally my alibi. Well, prison officers. Yeah. Uh, it didn't discredit the evidence against him for his other crimes, which is good. Yeah. What a, what a gem. <laughs> yeah, and so with no further leads, no more suspects, 
the investigation into Moira's disappearance was resigned to the cold case pile. And it would stay there until February 1992. Oh, boy. Um, and with that, uh, we're going to stop here and we'll pick up here in 1992 next week. Um. Thank you for listening, and uh, we will see you next week with the second half of this case, which um, takes a bit of a turn for the crazy uh, and includes understatement. <laughs> <laughs> includes Masons, conspiracies, cover-ups, and uh, one woman's uh, decades-long quest for justice for Moira. And if you already follow us on social media, you will know about the British Podcast Awards. <laughs> and we know that barring a miracle, we won't win. But we would still love it if you could take two minutes to vote for us in the Listener Choice Awards. Yeah. So go vote. Tag us on Instagram or Facebook when you do. It will feed our egos. And also help us get in front of so many more people. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And we will leave the link to the voting page in the show notes. It's all over our social media. And it doesn't cost you anything either. It's like two minutes of your time, if that. Yeah. Um, and sort of similarly, um, if you like the show and you want to do something else that is free and quick and simple uh, to help support us and, and get us in front of more more ears um you could give us a rating and a review and there will be a link to um a link that lets you do that uh <laughs> uh in in the show notes and you can also find that link on our website and basically you click on it it'll take you to uh, the podcast app that you have on your phone or that like, is compatible with your device. And so you can uh, rate and review as desired uh, at your convenience. Um, and we are greedy. We do like five stars. I mean, we do. But also, if you have a gripe and you like there's something that you don't like that we're doing you know, we are also open to constructive criticism and because we want... That's questionable at times. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> yeah, because Taylor is more open to, to constructive criticism. Well, because we want to make this a show that people like to listen to. And so if, if there's suggestions... Stubborn, though, so... <laughs> well, there's always room for improvement, so... You know, let us know what you think. We like we like honesty here, and uh, and I'll read them all. So don't yeah, worry about it. And we'll read our favorites out on the show as well. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, if you leave us a nice review or a funny review or any review at all, then <laughs> we'll read it. <laughs> um, and if you want to go uh, one step further and help support the show. Uh, monetarily, if you will, um, you can become a, a patron uh, by signing up at patreon.com slash square mile of murder. Um, our tiers start at just $1 a month, which is about 80p. Real, real cheap. And, you know, 
COVID, exchange rate, everything's crazy. Could be even yeah, less than that. Um, yeah, so that helps support the show. And, and any money that we raise on Patreon or, or through other uh, uh, channels, you know, we're reinvesting back into the show to help with advertising and equipment and, you know, hosting stuff and and all all that good stuff so um if you if you would so desire uh it would be greatly appreciated yeah and uh we will see you next week for the second part if we haven't scared you off <laughs> with the dramatic conclusion yes so yeah see you thank then. you all thank you very much bye Goodbye.